We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. It was the first time that I experienced a group of people being set free to create whatever they wanted. And it worked. And that became addictive to me. Like, oh my gosh. I want to figure out how to do this over and over and over. I was ecstatic at that Glorietta event. I felt like, oh, these are my people. People coming in, excited to hear about Glorietta. Glorietta, that was an incredible experience. It definitely was a turning point for a lot of people at Glorietta Conference. Glorietta, how many meetings have you been to where almost everybody that needed to come came? Glorietta, New Mexico, it really was the greatest Christian conference event I'd ever been to or been a part of. I mean, that's why I think for a lot of us, there's pre-Glorietta and there's post-Glorietta. Driscoll gave me the creeps. But every 500 years, the Latinized culture goes through a, a huge upheaval, and we're going through one right now. Every time that happens, whatever form of Christianity has to drop back and reconfigure it doesn't ever cease to be. They had a deep suspicion of hierarchy and institutionalism. If fear is the motivation behind not dealing with the sort of in the back of your mind questions, that to me is the worst kind of faith of all. It's, it's yeah. despair. Welcome to Emerged, a story of young leaders who had audacious dreams, who became loyal friends, who achieved fame and influence, who burned brightly, but briefly. And now for the first time, many of the leaders reflect on their participation in the emerging church movement, and they consider the movement's legacy. Join us as we tell the tale of their successes and failures, the attacks they endured, the mistakes they made, what they left undone, and what they accomplished. Join us to hear the story of what emerged. And now, here are your hosts, Tony Jones and Trip Fuller, with producer Josh Gilbert. I want to find my way, find my way back home. I want to learn to love. Just listening to it and having heard stories from a lot of the people involved, Glorietta was one of those moments that became bigger than what just happened because everyone discovered they were a part of something and they didn't know it existed. The Glorietta Conference, which was called the Reevaluation Forum in October of 98, did not happen in a vacuum. 
There's a journey we have to take to get to Glorietta in 98, and it includes Leadership Network founding the Young Leaders Network in 93, and then two pivotal events that preceded Glorietta that you'll hear about. One took place at a conference center called Glen Erie in Colorado in 1996, and the other at Mount Hermon Christian Camp in uh, 1997. Okay, after working on all of these conversations, I'm curious, Tony, what was the room like? What was that conference like? My brain just goes to a homebrewed theology beer camp event, but I don't know exactly what to picture. Can you kind of put us there in Glorietta in 1998? That's a great question, Josh. And it's a Southern Baptist Conference Center. That's one part of it that you got to know. Secondly, it was like you're walking back in time to the 1950s. I don't know, I remember it as kind of like dark stained wood and, you know, old pews that everybody was sitting in. As you'll hear in some of the interviews, there were talks, of course, but there was also a lot of worship. There were yoga classes. This was in, you know, this is in the mid-90s. They're do- we're doing yoga stuff and just stuff that you wouldn't expect. And I'll just tell you about this one moment. So we're in this room. There are about 450 people at, at the conference. And a band comes on stage... And it's the band from Mars Hill Church, the church founded by Mark Driscoll in Seattle. And they're like young and grungy and a guy starts playing the didgeridoo. And I'm telling you, they played this song. I'd never heard any, I don't know that I'd ever seen anyone play a didgeridoo before. And I truly never heard any worship music that was anything like this. It, it was just one of those singular moments in my life that I will never forget. And I, I, you'll hear in this episode other people saying there was this one thing that happened at Glorietta that changed everything for me. And for me, as strange as it may sound, it was that song called Romans 12 by the Mars Hill Worship Band that opens with a didgeridoo. But, you know, that actually, like, thinking that the moment was the arts and worship or liturgy or embodiment prayer, I think that is something that's really unique about these earlier parts of Emergent. Over time, the role of theological reflection and and kind of institutional battles came to dominate the emerging church movement. But when you hear all the things that are leading up to it and this moment of breakthrough in Glorietta, it was rediscovering the Christian tradition, smells and bells, the liturgical calendar, different kinds of prayer and all this kind of thing. It was kind of like they prayed into a new future aesthetically and then later came the whole reworking of some of these classic hangups that American evangelicals have theologically. Things that we might consider kind of passe today or like you, you don't even think twice about, that there would be an oil painter on the stage uh, next to somebody throwing pottery while they're listening to a talk by Len Sweet and they're kind of like reflecting back what they're hearing in visual art. That was like, nobody had done that before. And that happened at Glorietta and it blew all of our minds when stuff like that was happening. So it was, it was just like 
pioneering and groundbreaking in multiple ways. I mean, I remember the painter on stage at like the Easter service or maybe the Friday night service doing the painting while the pastor is giving this like intense speech. Is that, did that originate in Glorietta? You're welcome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it had been done before. Obviously, it had been done at some of these churches because they brought it to Glorietta. But that was the first time that those kind of sacred practices were broadcast to 450 pastors watching this happen in, in, a, in a room in Glorietta, New Mexico. I said I found myself somewhere on the way But I couldn't even point you to that day Seems I never quite know just where I'll land Keep pleading for the people to... When you think of some of those big emerging church events in like 08 to 2015 and such, the percentage of people in the room that are coming there from congregations that were celebrating creativity, the introduction of the arts, or reorienting the worship and wrestling with tech space uh, to kind of open up their congregation, that was not the makeup later. And I think part of the energy and excitement of Glorietta was a whole bunch of people who were vocationally connected to their church on the ground in community, sharing the exciting new things they've done when they just didn't inherit what came before, when it wasn't just, how do we connect with Gen X, but a recognition that there was a paradigm shift that was significant, but its significance opened up space for new expressions of fidelity and not new means to regurgitate the inherited tradition. I think you're going to hear that tension and that theme throughout this episode. And that's the question. Was this a generational shift or was it something bigger, what we might call an epistemological shift? And really that's, that's really at the core of the struggle in those early days. And now in trying to tell that story, plus you're also going to hear about a couple relatively infamous incidents from a relatively infamous pastor. Oh, I thought you were talking about Scott Stapp from Creed. You'll also hear about that. I am the founder of the Young Leaders Network. It was not accidental. It was uh, purposeful. That's the voice of Brad Smith. Brad came to work at Leadership Network in 1993. He had been an urban church planter prior to that. Uh, when he went to Leadership Network, he was in charge of the large church network. And also he was given responsibility for starting the Young Leaders Network. So Brad was the first point of contact for most of us who uh, came into the orbit of Leadership Network in the 1990s. My job at that point was to direct that large church um, network. And those customers were saying, one of our struggles, one of our challenges is we're not seeing younger leaders come in. And it was largely shaped as a baby boomer Gen X problem. But when we started looking at building a young leaders network, we understood it was not just a generational shift, uh, but it was actually a tectonic shift of worldview. And so that was kind of an important thing. So we knew that we needed to serve our customer who wanted to learn how to engage younger leaders. 
But we also knew that we needed to help the church by helping them see the bigger shifts that were occurring in any way that we could. You may remember from episode one, it opened with Danielle Schroyer, an undergrad at Baylor University, sitting on a couch in a house in Waco, Texas, in the very early days of University Baptist Church, founded by Chris C. and Dave Crowder. I asked Brad Smith how he first came in contact with Chris. Found Chris C. pretty early on when they were still meeting in the house. And I, because it's close by, I just kept driving down there and hanging out. And again, the old guy hanging out in the back, talking to people, engaging, and I loved it. I loved the tone. I loved what they were doing. It was different than anything else I saw in the church within a church movement. And I said, these are the people I want to build this around. Crowder and I were like way in over our head, like way in over our head. This is Chris C., co-founder of University Baptist Church in Waco and subsequently founder of Ecclesia Church in Houston, Texas, a very early young leader in the Young Leaders Network at Leadership Network. All of a sudden, we're 23 and we're leading a church that had a ton of people and, you know, we had all this stuff going on. So, I mean, I was, it was chaos. And they were like, hey, we want you to come meet with us. I remember vividly because then I got another letter and it was like, the same thing, but it was like, hey, if you'll come spend a day with us, we'll pay you like, I don't know, 500 bucks or something. And I was like, okay, for 500 bucks, I guess I'll do it, you know? So I literally had no clue who they were. And obviously, like one day with Brad Smith, and I was like, okay, you know, he starts, well, I was with Dallas Willard yesterday, and I was just like, oh God, you need to be my friend. I mean, it just instantly, he oozes so much wisdom, right? I was just like, I, I think I just said that day, like, will you be, will you please be my friend? I need more friends like this. He pulled me in for that day. And I liked Fred Smith and I liked all the people. I think Linda Stanley was in that circle. And they were all very smart and inquisitive. They asked great questions, but very generational questions, right? And we were kind of like, no, it's there's that. Yeah. I mean, maybe we like Letterman more than Leno, but it's not like this isn't, it's not that. It, it was all style. It was very pragmatic. You could see there was more to it. Welcome back to the show. Here's now George Michael, Colonel Gale Halverson. Live from the NBC studios in Burbank, California, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. I mean, at that point, we all had a love-hate relationship with, like, Willow and Saddleback and the whole thing, right? We, We loved it because it was like, they were willing to imagine doing church in a different way. And that felt really good. And it, it's what freed us up to not take all the hits to be able to go, we can do that too. Like we can do that too. It was also like at times you were just like, this is so goofy. I asked Brad Smith and Chris C about the events that led up to the Glorietta conference in 1998. And they each told me their own stories about the development of young leaders network and the events that preceded Glorietta, the one in Glen Erie, Colorado in 1996, and then in Mount Hermon, California in 1997. And so we started doing forums. They started meeting each other. They started forming ideas. And so our first attempt to actually gather something nationally was in March of 1996 in Glen Erie. 
And so then they pulled together the very first Gen X forum at Glen Erie. That was the big first thing. I think what Brad Smith wanted from the thing was like, tell me who you meet, you know, like, tell me who you meet. And so I, I got the privilege of being the early scout, like just find the people. And the only person at that thing I came back and was like, we're the same was Tim Keel. So it was like Tim Keel. And he's like, nobody else. I'm like, uh, maybe Ron Johnson was at that thing. A couple of people, but it was like, no, Tim Keel, you know? Um, but all of a sudden you got Tim Keel, right? And you know, nobody's better than Tim Keel. He was a great guy. We've learned so much together. I was at the event at Glen Erie in 1996. You probably recognize that voice. It's Doug Paget. He was in episode one. And at this point in the story in 1996, he is a youth pastor at Wooddale Church in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. That was one of my early introductions to Leadership Network. And I remember the feeling that then so many other people had when they would come to Emergent Village stuff, which was these people are finally talking about the things that I want to talk about. And this feels like my kind of people. And there was some tension in the room. It was much more filled with generational talk, like the difference between The Tonight Show and David Letterman. Chris C. did this whole bit about how Johnny Carson ran his late night show compared to David Letterman's late night show with that kind of comparison. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's Johnny. But the subtext of people in between the sessions was all about the larger cultural shifts and epistemological conversations about how we understand where we are in the world and theological questions. Imagine a grown man at a pastor's meeting in the back of the room in the fetal position. You met Brad Cecil in episode one. He founded Access, a church within a church of Pantego Bible Church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. Uh, Brad was obviously a very significant figure in the early days of Emergent, and he came up with a very famous PowerPoint that we're gonna get into in a future episode, but what was the genesis of that PowerPoint was a moment he had also at the Glen Erie Conference Center, but at a different event. This was a smaller meeting to plan out some church within a church gatherings and forums around the country for Leadership Network. So let's hear Brad talk about that moment. I'll never forget it. I'm invited to this church and churchy planning event. So we're planning a conference or a series of, of, of meetings throughout the country talking about the role of a church within a church, which is the, the term that we had for our approach uh, to what we were doing. I was invited to this discussion at, at Glen Erie, but when I got there, I realized I'm out of place. This is not the place for me. And so as this discussion is going on, 
I'm trying to withdraw so I don't get asked a question. <laughs> so Doug is, is facilitating the conversation. So, of course, he's being a good facilitator. He's going around the room, making sure everybody talks. And then he turns to me. And, and by this time, I literally am over in the corner with my knees up to my chest, with my arms around it in a fetal position, just hoping he doesn't call me. I'm just like, do not ask me a question because I don't want to talk. And so he, he says to me, Brad, what are, what are your thoughts on this? And I said, guys, I'm seeing something totally different than what you're seeing. Up until that point, the conversation was all about the characteristics of Gen X, that the, the, their parents are all divorced, they don't trust leadership, you know, all the characteristics that you used to read about with Gen X is what they were talking about and how to overcome those things. That was the big discussion. When they opened me up, I just kind of spilled out. I said, no, I think there's something much bigger going on. I, I really do think that there's a shift in philosophy that's occurring right now. We're in the midst of it, so you, you can't really tell what the outcome's going to be like. But I just think that there's something very, very significant uh, at play here. When I said that, there's a couple people in the room that I, I, I could tell were interested in what I had to say. After he opened me up, <laughs> I started to, to explain there's something else going on here. It was time for lunch. So we went over to the lunchroom and I sat at the table and then I could tell people are coming over to my table saying, hey, can you explain this more and more? And I want to know what you're thinking. And there's people like Dan Kimball and, and Doug and others that are, are all part of this conversation. Do you remember who else was there? Yeah, um, it was a, a kind of a who's who of church and church people. Ken Baugh from a McLean Bible Church. Danny Harrell was there. It was, a, it was quite a gathering, and I felt a little bit, a little bad explaining that I didn't see things the same way everybody in the room saw things. But then after lunch, Doug said to me, could you explain what postmodernism is? And I said, well, I can try. I started reading like people like John Caputo and others. Postmodernity is uh, respectful of differences. It affirms multiplicity and plurality. It's always worried that the thing that we've gotten accustomed to is going to become hegemonic and exclude other possibilities. So it's a kind of radical openness to other ways of thinking and being. I was reading their material, and it really inspired me when I saw that material and, and, and the level of conversation that was going on, specifically about religion. And so I drew this timeline on this whiteboard in the room, and that became this legendary PowerPoint that I used to share all over the country, trying to explain to people, this is the modern era, this is the postmodern era, this is, you know, these are the tenants and, and all that. But I can, I can still remember when I, when I shared this with people, how many people were scribbling down notes as fast as they could write because I don't think they'd heard this before. It surprised me a little bit because I think if you're in seminary uh, at the time, you probably were getting some introduction to these ideas. Uh, it wasn't just you know random ideas that were out there. People were taking uh, a long time to evaluate what is happening in philosophical conversations around the world. So when I pour this out to everybody at Glen Airy, I can tell that they weren't used to this level of conversation about this. And 
Doug laughs at me to this day because of how he caught me in that field position. And then I opened up and spill all my guts out <laughs> onto everybody. I asked Doug Paget his memory of that moment when Brad came out of the fetal position and explained postmodernism for the first time. Yeah, it was putting a historical context and kind of a putting sort of a frame around where this moment sits in a larger set of moments that have all come together. So it didn't feel like it was emotional, like, oh, that's what I've experienced. It was like, well, that's what's going on. It was like that kind of feeling. Like when you watch The Matrix. Literally, because <laughs> I walked out of that movie theater, I remember you called me called as your you, one. Yeah. I called Chris C and was just like, okay. Here's what I remember you saying. Everything we've been talking about is in this movie. Yes. Like, drop everything you're doing and go watch this movie. Yeah, drive to the movie theater right now. No, truly, I felt that way. Brad's articulation was the first time at sort of a narrative level that someone had said, Look, over the last 500 or 800 years, there's been a thing afoot, and we're part of that thing. Yeah, it seemed like you know, there's, there were so many questions uh, about this. And to be fair, I had, I had done a little bit more reading than uh, quite a few of the people there. So all I'm trying to do is just walk them through some basic ideas and some understandings that are going on. But it was a, a topic of conversation. And yes, it, it did almost lay a new trajectory to this whole you know, conversation that Leadership Network was having. I'm going to beg the listener's indulgence here and use a cliche because it's actually a perfect cliche. It's time to address the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room at the Mount Hermon conference in 1997 was a church planter and pastor from Seattle who planted Mars Hill Church. His name was Mark Driscoll. I did meet Mark Driscoll, and Mark and I traveled and hung out all throughout Seattle, uh, went to the gaming places and basements where he would meet people and talk to people. And then Dieter Zander, Ken Ball, is kind of the key people that could help me as somebody who was outside of the age range to create something that would address what was happening in the tectonic shifts. So let's get to, to Mount Hermon. 1997, I needed somebody who had the gift of prophecy. And what I mean by that is not necessarily the prophetic, but they have a gift to speak with challenge, with uh, clarity, but do it in a way which is received. It is a spiritual gift. And people, um, I could say the same things, um, but they wouldn't receive it. And I'm just not wired that way. I'm going to be more of a peacemaker by temperament. And there's Mark Driscoll. He understood postmodernism. He understood the tectonic shift, and he could articulate it like nobody else I had met at his age. I found older people that could do it. I could do it, but not with his um, entertainment skill. But I needed somebody like that. I felt like God gave us that, uh, Mark. I spent a lot of time with Mark, and so I'm pretty direct. And I said, Mark, every time you quote Pascal five times in a talk, 
and you say that you read a book every day, it's just arrogant. Even if it's true, you can't say that, okay? And I've told you that, you keep doing it. I'm stuck. Could you spend time with Tim Selleck? Go down there and he needs to kind of help you understand how to be effective. Otherwise, I can't use you in that key spot that I need as that voice of challenge on the first morning. So Tim spent a week with him, and, and I don't know how much you spent time with Tim. Tim's direct, and he's a wonderful pastor. And then at the end, I called, called them both, and Tim said he's not ready yet. <laughs> so I said, Mark, you know, Tim. And so Tim spent another week with him. And then I also spent time with his mentor, Ken Hutchinson, Hutch, in Seattle. And I said, I'm thinking about asking Mark to do this role. That's putting him on a national stage. I know y'all have had some strife and you're also in a relationship. And Ken said, I authorize that because what you're asking to do is exactly what God has gifted him to do. And so when we eventually put him on the stage of Mount Hermon, which most of the people that were at that meeting said that is the time they first understood that there was a tectonic shift. It was the aha moment for 800 people. And I've heard that over and over and again. And again, for those that were church planters, uh, thinkers, even mega church pastors who were attending that meeting, Mark did something magical. I'm going to ask you guys to think hard. I know it's early. I'll take you on my journey. Every generation needs prophets, they need reformation. They need revival. Every single generation, right? It's not like there was a reformation. There has to be one every generation. And you guys are in. This is the foundation of, of the next reformation. It has to come. It's no disrespect to the previous generations because when it all is said and done, I know that the millennialists will be having conferences bagging on me because I gave them a messed up gospel and a messed up ministry philosophy because I'm a sinner falling short of the glory of God and everything that happens is by grace and miracle. That's audio of Mark's actual talk at Mount Hermon in 1997. But that's not all that happened at that conference as Brad Smith goes on to tell us. But also I asked Mark to be accountable, okay? And let me tell you that story because it's important it's not been told in the, the whole Christianity Today podcast. So I said to Mark, anytime that you cuss, swear, you're going to lose a segment of the audience and they're going to focus on the swearing and you're going to miss the moment for them to hear the message. And he said, I choose not to. I'll, I'll agree with that. So he went under that authority. Right after his talk, he came up to me and he was heartbroken. And he said, I think I sweared. I am so sorry. Because once Mark gets talking, it happens, right? You know, Mark's Mark. And he said, kiss my 501s is what he was saying. Come over and kiss our shrink defense. We've got to get beyond that. And I said, you know what? That was a creative. It wasn't a swear. And But you did well, okay? That was excellent. The point being is he was really responding and wanted to respond to authority. Um, I got word Thursday night, okay, that he had walked into a small group that was led by Ken Ball. Now, remember, all of our other meetings, Ken Ball was on the stage. Mark was not on the stage. He might have led a small group, but Ken Ball was in power. Mark was not. This time, Mark was on stage. Ken Ball was in a small group meeting, and he went after Ken in front of everybody. And so I went to find Mark that night, and I said, Mark, you've been given power in this meeting. You were put on stage. You have power. And you can't come in and blast people like that because you're now... Uh, blasting them from a position of power. And it has a totally different effect. He looked at me and he said, I was wrong. 
He said, I never get up early. I'm getting up early. Got up early, knocked on Ken's door, apologized. And this is Mark. This is classic Mark. Stood in front of the whole congregation, the whole meeting, and said, I want to tell you what I did to Ken last night. He told it, nothing, all that right. I was wrong, and I cannot have communion with you until I confess that to you, and I confess that to Ken. I was wrong. It was classic Mark. But I want you to understand, in that setting, yes, Mark is Mark, but he also was a team player. He's got great clarity. God used him. During that time, he also had, uh, his father-in-law was alive. His father-in-law had an influence on him. There was, you know, Grace's dad. There was a lot going on that was really good. And so, you know, people say, do you regret being the first person to put him on a national stage? No, I don't. I mean, I look back and I have plenty of regrets. Driscoll got tapes from the Glenary thing. I mean, he just called me one day. And it doesn't take long talking to Driscoll to know. Like, this guy's really smart. And he had a radio show, and I listened to the radio show. And the real differentiator for most of us was not when we got together, we didn't talk anything that was generational, but we were talking about. Jim McClendon and Nancy Murphy and narrative theology. And we were talking about noob again. Those were the things that connected all of us. And so Driscoll was in that camp of like, I mean, he was 100% in that camp. And, you know, I, I, I get to a really hard place talking about him because, you know, I, I didn't participate in the, the podcast that they did before, because personally, I can't figure out with a lot of the guys, I was a pastor to them and in a lot of places in their life, right? And Driscoll's one of those guys. And I don't know when I was his friend and when I was his colleague and when I was his pastor. So it's really hard for me to talk about because most of the, I mean, the stories they want are the ones I know never going to talk about because they were pastoral. I mean, and ultimately that was Driscoll's biggest insult for me. He would go, you're such an effing pastor, you know? And, um, and for him, it was like, you know, you don't have, have it in you to run over people in the right way. Right. And, um, so, yeah, Driscoll, um, after that, Driscoll was a part of Mount Hermon. I remember talking with Mark before that event and after the event, and Mark Driscoll was a, was a very different character and different person at different times in my experience with him. And at that period of time, he was still kind of the brash sort of person, but he was coming out of the charismatic background that he's now returned to, interestingly. This is before his interlude in the world that was Reformed theology. So he was very much in form, in formation period of, of time during, during all of that. And it was the level of response of large churches to say this emerging culture thing is something we care about. That was the point that I took away from the content of that event and the reception of that event in Mount Hermon. Oh, it was huge. And I still run into people all the time. And I've got amazing friends. That It, it was an amazing event. And, and Driscoll, I mean, he's Driscoll, right? So he just like, he had condensed a ton of information and he, he freaking nailed it. And it was, it, it was great. It was Driscoll at his best. And again, people don't realize like Driscoll at that point, his mentor, and I would say, again, this is where it gets cloudy for me. Driscoll was influenced and you, you'd have to do, you know, ask him why, but I think a lot of it had to do with wanting a spiritual father. So like at that point, this guy Hutch was really his spiritual father and he was pretty dispensationalist. He wasn't reformed at all, you know, and ultimately David Nicholas was reformed and David became a spiritual father and Mark became pretty reformed. And, um, 
And, you know, I can't say, you know, the thing about Mark is, I mean, he's unbelievably smart. He's unbelievably gifted. He's got a challenging relationship with the truth. In, in the early days, Mark used to, to do this thing and he, to try to impress people, right? I'm sure you saw him do it, like where he would tell people, you know, I read a book a day, right? He'd tell people all the time, I read a book a day, right? And he was doing that for a while. And I just finally said, Mark, you don't read a book a day. We all know you might read a comic book a day, but you don't read a book a day. Shut up. Don't ever say it again. And if you do, like, I'm going to correct you in front of people because I think it's stupid. I think you sound stupid, right? And he goes, okay. I won't, you're right. I don't read a book a day. Like, you might read a couple books a week. Like, you might read three books, but nobody reads a book every day. Like, let it go. You don't need to show off, right? And I, I, I swear to you, I'll never forget. We, we met Tim Keller at the same time out at Spanish River Church in Boca Raton. And neither one of us had met Tim Keller before. We meet Tim Keller, and it doesn't take him three minutes. And he says, you know, Tim, I read a book a day. And, um, and I, I tell him, like, Driscoll, I told you. Like, dude, I told you. Like, you don't, don't say that. I said, Tim, he doesn't read a book a day. He might read a comic book a day. But, you know, Tim and I talked about it later, and, and, and they had a relationship. And, you know, we all knew what Driscoll was. But, uh, but Driscoll, the thing was at that point, I mean, he understood the world view pieces and postmodernity and some of those things really well at that point. It was great at consolidating it. And there was a, there was a fight in, in, in that Mount Hermon day. And I can't even remember the guy's name. But it was really between what we thought was about worldview and missiology and postmodernity. And then, you know, there was this, I can't even remember his name. I blocked it out. I think it was Ken Baugh. That's I his name. I think it was Ken Baugh that he confronted. Yeah. Yeah, from McLean Bible. And I couldn't be there because I was leading another session. And I feel bad in this day because I asked Mark to go be there. But I couldn't stand the thing that Kim Baugh did. Like, it was just all, it was like the Saddleback Sam of Gen X, right? And every, I can't remember, every Gen Xer fed into one of four boxes. And, and, and again, we all had this youthful angst. And I don't know what my, but I just hated it. Like, every, well, the first time I heard him present it, I was just like, no, like, don't talk. It just was, it was so bad to me. It was cringy. And, and I just knew it was like feeding candy to a baby. All these bo- baby boomer pastors, that's what they wanted was like, let's put them in a box and give them what they want. And and we were going, hey, this is way more complicated than that. So, I mean, Driscoll was a hammer at that thing because he came after him. You know, I was speaking a different thing and I just said, don't let this guy run rampant over this thing because if they catch on to this, like that's what everybody wants. So I wasn't there when he blew up, but it was pretty infamous. The guy had never done anything, you know, and then I look back and like, at least I grew up. I, I was 23, but I grew up. My dad was a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. I grew up like going with my dad to hospitals and praying with people like like when i started doing hospital visits this is the most natural thing in the world to me because i'd i'd watch my dad do it mark had never he hadn't been around his dad was a sheetrocker and and they they had their challenges so to just step in and all of a sudden because he had read the bible a little bit and had some gifts like the fact that i was a part of thrusting him on that stage i regret because he called me and i'm like this guy's the smartest guy i've talked to brad let's give him two talks at mount Hermon, like Let's do it. And um, I look back and think, yeah, probably not the best idea. Our anthropology has shifted. If you're preaching a self-help, hey, put a, put a Band-Aid on the Titanic and deny the obvious and rearrange the deck chairs, it's not going to happen. They, they know they're sinners. Tell them that. It'll be like fresh water. 
Um, in addition, we're seeing um, on the anthropology of man a shift from nationalism to globalism. It used to mean something to say, I'm an American. It doesn't. Does that bother you? Should it? Is this your, is this your, is this your kingdom? Is this your home? Or is this your citizenship? Or is, is Jesus Christ apple pie and Chevrolet and, and baseball? He'd, he'd hit over 300 if he was, but no. But no, he's not. I'm not saying I'm anti-American, okay? I'm glad that God sovereignly placed me in this nation. But the gospel's bigger than the religious right. It's bigger than the political expediency. It's bigger than the election. Right? And so with this generation, if you're preaching the, we need to go back to the good old days, I saw Jerry Falwell on TV, and it was funny. I thought it was Saturday Night Live. And <laughs> I didn't understand. He's just banging away. Ellen Degenerate is what he's calling her. Just screaming at her. There's this lesbian woman on there, and he's arguing with her, and it didn't go anywhere. You know, well, this is a Christian country, and God gave it to us, and I want the land back, and I'm just going, no. No, this is not a theocracy. This is not Israel. We're not the heart of predicative prophecy, you know? When all is said and done, that's going to be, possibly nothing will be said or done about or for or with us. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, what happens when Chris C. meets Doug Padgett for the first time? Plus, you'll hear many voices reflecting on their experiences at the Glorietta Conference in 1998. If you press to saying the same stuff you're talking about i think you're gonna like him and um gosh i can't even remember it must have been in minneapolis i was going to do something but i mean literally it took two minutes and like you're like this is my lifelong friend like you know i want to make the journey with this guy so i mean i just went back to brad and said yeah that's the guy like hire him and if you hire him we can do this you know we can totally do this Doug Padgett about how he ended up working at Leadership Network, taking over the Young Leaders Network from Brad Smith. I was a part of Leadership Network's organizing of large church youth leaders, so I knew the organization. The church I worked at, Wooddale Church, was one of the premier churches in that network, and we were deeply tied into the Leadership Network world personally and organizationally. 
So I, I knew its work really well. And I was organizing youth leaders in Minnesota as an alternative to the way youth specialties organized youth leaders. Youth specialties at the time, one of the premier youth conferences and organizations, tended to work with under-resourced youth leaders and to help them be part of a larger system. The organizations that I was involved with were other large churches that didn't need youth specialties, in some ways felt more advanced than what youth specialties could provide. So we tried to make networks of large church youth ministries around the nation and locally in, in Minnesota. And I approached Leadership Network and asked them if they would help us to organize and provide some funding for organizing youth pastors from large churches. And that then started this conversation about, well, we're actually thinking about hiring a position for this. And so the, and, and then the, the job description uh, just fit me almost to a T. You know, it was very clear that this was a role that that I was interested in and had the skill sets that I was interested in developing that were required for it. And then I asked Doug about his breakout event as a staff member at Leadership Network, and that is organizing the reevaluation forum in Glorieta, New Mexico in 1998. One of the conditions we put on that event was that if you were born before 1960, you had to be accompanied by someone born after 1960. And so we wanted it to be for people in that generational space to try to create room and declare the you know, younger generation as leaders. So if you were a senior pastor who was older than that or a, a co-pastor, you had to get your youth pastor to let you come. And we tried to build enough interest in it where older people could feel hosted by the next generation. So it did have a generational frame to it, but it was really just a way to build intrigue, all of that, and to keep it interesting and to say to the group of us who always felt like we were there as second fiddle, maybe we could go as younger leaders to the things that looked like the great stuff that older leaders got to go to. And then we were really trying to pivot to a broader conversation about theology and philosophy and cultural shift and away from generationalism. So we use generationalism as the hook, but then really wanted to make the emphasis be something more consequential. And I remember running into Brian McLaren's book, uh, Church on the Other Side, and calling him and saying, hey, I just read this book. This is exactly what we're talking about at this event. Would you be interested in coming and listen to a Creed song, Driving Home? In Texas and went to a Barnes and Noble and bought the Creed album and then started reaching out to Scott Stapp because I thought that his music on that album was what we were talking about. And then he set up an interview with us, was going to attend the event and then had a recording thing where he couldn't. So we flew to LA and interviewed him. And like we were just in real time finding anyone who was saying the kinds of things that we thought this event was about and tried to recruit them to come in. That was the benefit of Leadership Network's financial support. Never gave money to anyone to attend. I mean, paid presenters if they need to be paid, but it just allowed us to have access to all kinds of people. And we just had the freedom to reach out and say, would you mind coming and being a part of this? And so we had a very generous feeling about presenters. Come and talk about whatever you think matters right now. 
about this time that I had my first introduction to this whole network of people. I had met Doug when we were both youth pastors in suburban Minneapolis. He moved to Texas shortly after we had breakfast one day and I had not heard from him in a while. And then uh, he reached out and asked if I would come to a planning meeting in August of 1998 for a conference that was gonna take place in New Mexico that October. And so I flew down and it was a, a very memorable time. We met in, I think in the lobby of a embassy suites or in an office, you know, in, a, in like a conference room at an embassy suites. And then had dinner at Papacito's. You may remember that from episode one. It was quite a memorable dinner in large part because I got in a theological argument about the Bible with Mark Driscoll. I, I, I do remember that time because he was upset. In fact, I think there, there was a phrase that was used, um, you weren't present, but he says, I'm not going to listen to this um, liberal youth pastor explain the theology of the church. Uh, that is a story for another day, but I, I remember it well. So Doug Padgett met me the year before in San Francisco and uh, asked me if I could come and jump into this group of 10, which later became a group of 20. And uh, we actually went to Glorietta about three months or so before the event happened, just to, to pray and to walk around and to imagine. That's the voice of Andrew Jones, better known to many people as Tall Skinny Kiwi, one of the premier bloggers and frankly networkers in the movement that became the emerging church. He was a radical missionary uh, living out of a van with his family and uh, he had come into Doug's orbit and he ended up at a different planning meeting for Glorietta than the one I went to. He was at one that took place at the Glorietta Conference Center just a couple months before the conference was held. Here's Andrew talking about his experience at that planning meeting. Doug must have been in a really good, generous mood because as Doug and I walked around together, everything I suggested, he said yes. I, I said, why don't we do a, a kind of a, a Jesus Club ravey thing with DJs and lights and fog and everything because we were doing all night Jesus raves in San Francisco at the time. And I said, I can bring one or two of my DJs over. And he said, yes, let's do it. And we had a perfect space to do it so that people could discover what worship without a stage would look like. And then I said, hey, what about we have this room become a studio where people, when they're thinking about what's being taught and talked about, they can express it through art. And, and Doug just kept saying, yes, yes, yes. He didn't, he didn't say no to anything. It was so crazy. And then I said, uh, I said when, when people were like thinking about these deep theological, missiological, ecclesiological thoughts, why don't we just make the whole thing more public and just put paper on the wall of the foyer and lots of pens and felt tips, and they can just write stuff, whatever they want to write, and then people can interact with what they're thinking because everything will become more open. And, and then my wife, Debbie, who was there also, she said, yeah, and let's put a, 
a lump of clay in the middle without any instructions and just see what people do with it. Sally Morgenthaler arrived at that planning meeting with the pastor of the church she was attending. It was Pathways Church in Denver, pastored by Ron Johnson. And she uh, came with him to that planning meeting at Glorietta. Sally was a columnist for Worship Leader Magazine at the time, and she had come out in 1995 with the book Worship Evangelism, uh, which all of us had read. Sally now goes by the name Morgan McKenna, and I had a fantastic interview with her about her experience first at that planning meeting and then as a keynote speaker at the National Reevaluation Forum. I was there because I had told Chuck Frum, who's the, the managing editor of Worship Leader Magazine, I told him, look, there's this group that's going to get together in Santa Fe, young pastors, and I know enough about it that I'm just super interested, and I want to know what the implications were going to be for, for worship. I just remember being in a room where, you know, with an easel, and because I came in as a reporter from Worship Leader Magazine, I thought, okay, I better sit back. But it was just so fascinating already from the beginning. Doug, Mark Driscoll, somewhat Andrew were, Chris was there, talking about the why of the conference, um, what the major themes were going to be. And so it was necessarily on a you know, thematic and theoretical level, just just to make sure that the direction was right. All right, we have made it to October 1998. Glory at a Christian Conference Center outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. I've already told you what a pivotal event that conference was in my own life and journey. I asked several other people to reflect on their experience of that conference. You're going to hear from Brad Smith of Leadership Network, Andrew Jones, the tall skinny Kiwi, Brad Cecil of Access, Doug Paget of Leadership Network, Tim Condor of Emmaus Way, and Morgan McKenna from Pathways Church and Worship Leader Magazine. I was excited to see the energy, excited to see new people coming in, excited to hear about Glorietta. It seemed like a much better space. I love the camping idea. And I met with, met with the team in Glorietta tried to keep a background, uh, say in the background, but I already had learned how to do that um, and um, just was excited. Loved every bit of it. I love what they were doing. I didn't see any concerns. I felt like it was the combination that you had where you see it and feel it and then have somebody later explain it. That's better than having somebody explain it and then try to have it demonstrated. And the worship, the music, the tone, um, looking around and seeing the art installations, all of that was like, wow, I'm experiencing it. Why does this feel right? Why are they doing this? And then have um, the explanations. Uh, I thought it was a great combination. That's what we did at Mount Hermon. That's what we tried to do at Glen Erie, not as well. 
I felt like the uh, the network very much continued that approach. And there was a warm welcome. It wasn't just in your face. Uh, I felt the tone was wonderful and it was a safe place for people. So when I came to Glorietta, I met the most fabulous people. I, I got to meet Shannon Hopkins, who had just done Texas's first emerging church, which was a, a cafe, coffee house kind of a church in the, in the 90s. And then she went on to start what was called the Emerging Church Network in Texas under the Southern Baptists. And then, oh, I got to meet Len Sweet and Stanley Grins. And, uh, oh, it really did uh, change the direction of my life. I was so weird looking at the time. I'm, I mean, I'm like working with goths and punks and street kids. I got goth boots up to my knees and wearing a, a trench coat from the 1960s from the thrift store and a ponytail, but all all the group invited me in and welcomed me and I never felt weird. I always felt very accepted and it was a really, really fun time. Well, if you remember back in Glorietta, we, we actually had artists painting uh, their reaction to the the worship uh, experience at the time, and they're doing it live. They were doing it in the in the worship uh, service, and then of course the use of of darkness instead of light. So the other thing about you know the reaction was you got to have these rooms dark, and they have to be candle lit uh, because it provides more of a mystical element. Again, we're tying back to the early church and looking back to see it, you know what other elements did they have. In fact, I even remember the use of incense, which for a Protestant is kind of rare, but, you know, the church, I, I think at Glorietta, somebody actually had a censer that was in the service before we were there. I can still remember the permission that this, this was giving people all over the country to do some of these things in their service. And so it was, it was kind of an interesting, uh, it definitely was a turning point for a lot of people at Glorietta Conference. Well, I remember just to illustrate that, you know, when when Mark Driscoll came in the room with the band, Daniel Harrell and I were sitting in the the same lobby. We must have been in the same place and we were like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> I mean, in terms of like they were 19 and they were following him kind of like Jesus. Uh I mean, there was a uh, I'm sure we made some snide comments of 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 polygamy or something related to that whole whole deal, but but you know, the the Intensity of confidence. At one point, I, I was in a, you know, Rodney Clapp, who was a great, thoughtful leader, wrote that wonderful book, A Peculiar People, that we all read at that point in time. He was leading a, a, you know, a breakout at that point. And I was sitting there with a group of people that would become part of the group of 20, those original, you know, emergent leaders under the Young Leader banner. And I was sitting beside Mark Driscoll and Rodney Clapp said something that he didn't like. And, you know, he said, well, you know, and he challenged it, even though it wasn't like a challenge the speaker type of thing. And Rodney, very kindly to kind of let him off the hook, said, well, you know, I mean, I'm much older and you may run into some experiences that change your mind on that. And Mark shot back and said, and he's like 26 or 27, I've been a lot of places. <laughs> the, the, the volume of confidence. So there was a lot lot of intense kind of uh, trumping, pissing contest to the point of it took real persistence in the early year, year and a half to just keep coming and to keep staying in the room uh, on those conversations. So Glorietta, uh, that was an incredible experience. We were at Glorietta and I was taking in 
all this incredible, uh, the, the paradigm shift at some pretty deep levels, talking about Augustine and just, you know, the theological stuff that, that you were dealing with. It was new to me, but I was also taking in a social dynamic where you've got, I don't know, are you all type A's? Who knows? The gender thing where um, you've got both women and, and men, their spouses. I was the only female non-spouse at this point. And, you know, there's just a general excitement about it. But And the women, you know, were relating to each other and really obviously super smart and engaged in the material. But... Uh, they, they they weren't engaged in the conversation, and I didn't know what that was about. I was just brand new to this. Um, you know, I didn't know what the rules are. And you were, were Lutheran. I mean, you're mainline. Ah, uh, yeah, right. Lutheran mainline. Hey, I wrote a book as a woman that wasn't about kids, and it you know, and it <laughs> and children's it wasn't about children's yep. ministry or women's ministry. And I didn't know. Well, you're not really supposed to do that. Well, you know, Nadia Bowles Weber you know, really blew all that up. But I I didn't know that. And I didn't know that women were not, uh, at least in the evangelicalism of the 70s and 80s, a lot of women weren't asked, you know, into the kind of conversations, especially theological conversations, that were, you know, like what were happening there. I was wondering about that at the same time where I was really trying to focus on this electricity that was in the room and, you know, just the mind-blowing shifts, the zeitgeist, a new zeitgeist that I had been hoping for, didn't know how it was going to arrive. But I had a, uh, I mean, I, I was so grateful for, I don't know, the opportunities that had unfolded for me in evangelicalism from about 93 and you know by five years before but I was also frustrated getting behind the curtain and not knowing okay I'm I can do this I I can't at this that point I can't wear pants on stage when I started in these big places it's, you know I was encouraged I, you're still wearing skirts and at that time coming out of the 80s you know the like the suits with the Right. And I, I lost those really, really quickly. Right. So to be in this zeitgeist of real. And I got that sense of you know, the agentic male and that the heroic, we've got to do something about this. It was quest energy. It was strong quest energy. And I have a lot of that myself. You know, understanding, you know, we've all got the masculine and feminine in us and we can engage it. And I felt the permission to engage that, which was fantastic because I hadn't really felt a lot of that permission in the years previous. I mean, I think uh, Worship Evangelism that came out in 95, that was well-liked, but I did feel when I spoke, I had to tone it down. And yeah, I look back and I was... uh, highly critical of the evangelicalism of the 80s and 90s. And I was finding a simpatico with you guys around that. We just can't keep doing 
this thing, this compartmentalized Christianity, this very modern, disembodied kind of Christianity. And of course, this is hyperbole, but still we saw enough of it. We were reacting to it. And I, I, I felt an affinity with you guys in that way. By the time the conference happened, um, there were so many people, they were spilling out into the hallways dressed in, I mean, they were costumed, many of them. It was, it was fabulous. And it was an environment that you all created and just the, the culture of it, you know, that, that, that aggregate, when you get people who have been longing for a certain thing, and then it just, it opens up. And, and that to me, was uh, such a gift. Okay, you can be who you are, where you are. You can be in process. As much as you can plan for it, you can never really imagine what is it's is going to be like. And I just felt like the lid came off in a great way, giving permission for the this whole movement to go forward and legitimizing it in this in this gorgeous way i said i found myself somewhere on the way but i couldn't even point you to that day seems i never quite know just where i'll land keep pleading for the people to understand now you get to hear the voice of someone who arguably became the most important and seminal figure in the emerging church movement someone i met for the first time at the glorietta conference he had planted the church Cedar Ridge Christian Church in Spencerville, Maryland, and had just come out with his first book, Church on the Other Side. This is the one and only Brian McLaren. So I think we met in one of those meetings. I think I'd been brought in uh, you may have even been part of the conversations, but I think I was being auditioned whether I could, uh, you know, whether I was a jerk or not. I remember a meeting at the end of that event where I met a lot of people for the first time. And I thought that's where you and I met. I don't think we talked at all, but we were we were in the same room at the same time. <laughs> what were your impressions of that of that Glorietta gathering? Well, my first book had just come out. And when I wrote that book, I, I remember saying to my wife, when this book comes out, I'm going to lose all my friends. Um, and I did have a couple of friends who I, I lost, really, when that book came out. That was my coming out, in many ways, as a, someone who thought differently. And I was ecstatic at that Glorietta event. I felt like, oh, these are my people. I really had no idea how many people were there, 400, 500 people. I had no idea there were this many people even open to having the kind of conversations we were opening up. So I was, I couldn't have been happier at that event. Um, Driscoll gave me the creeps um, uh, in some ways, but. Thanks, Brian. We're, we're gonna hear a bit more about Mark Driscoll in episode three and about the end of his time in the Young Leader Network. And of course, we're gonna hear a lot more from Brian McLaren as the oral history of the emerging church movement rolls on. But today, the last word on the Glorietta Conference goes to Chris C., who went on to found Ecclesia Church in Houston, but at the time 
was the co-founder and pastor of University Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. Here's Chris. Yeah, I just remember it felt like we birthed the baby. There was something bigger that had come out, and it was the first time it felt like us, right? So there was cool art things going on. The music things were going on. It was ironic for me because I think I'm the one that suggested Glorietta because I grew up Baptist, and we and we just knew it was close to Santa Fe, this postmodern Mecca. And so we're in this like super kind of 60s Baptist camp. But we were there because Santa Fe and New Mexico had this like amazing, just the energy and the mountains and all of the presentations were amazing. And I think having people like Stan Grounds that were finally like writing books about the, like we felt like, hey, we're not just some French group talking like this is, this is important what we're saying, what we've been saying. And they, they were just, and it, and it was the first thing that we'd done that felt really eclectic men, women, mainline, Protestant, evangelical, charismatics, like everybody was there. There was just, it, there were so many edifying conversations. And I think it was the time we realized like, we're, we're gonna have a family that we really journey with. I wish we could have stayed in that place a lot longer, you know? Uh, and it wasn't the only event like that, right? We had more that were, uh, that, that felt like that, but that was the first one I remember at that event just being in awe of the beauty and the ideas and everybody wanted to seem like they wanted to learn from each other and um, and that's where it was like you know I think we I'm sure Doug took some heat for some things but I think overall leadership network and everybody was there felt like something just shifted in the world and in the church because these people got together right and we were just at the point we were getting phones maybe around like they just started to fill up with numbers right and all of a sudden you went like i got so many friends now and that was we had a few friends and we had friends here and there and we have friends that some agreed and some didn't but we left and we're like i think we have a tribe like and i think you know that was the beginning of emergent village of what really was a village and i couldn't be more grateful for that and i loved i loved that feeling i mean that's why i think for a lot of us there's pre-glorietta and there's post-glorietta Emerged is a homebrewed Christianity production. Trip Fuller and Tony Jones are your hosts. Production, mixing, and sound design by Josh Gilbert. Media and marketing by David Trotter. The music you're hearing is from the Cobalt Season, thanks to Ryan Sharp. Other music used is from Solomon's Porch, compliments of Ben Johnson, and of Ecclesia and the Voice Bible, thanks to Chris C. Thanks to Ben Vandermeer for sourcing the Driscoll Talk at Mount Hermon. Thanks to all the Emerged members who make this show possible. And thanks to you for listening. See you next time. You just finished the second episode of the Emerged podcast. This crowdfunded production is a whole bunch of work, like Cray Cray Volumes. If you enjoy it, want to keep making it happen, and let us finish telling the story, head to EmergePodcast.com and join the community. There are people donating to make this podcast possible. 
Because they're helping us out, we give them all sorts of bonus features like ad-free versions of the public show, live streams on the off week, and bonus interviews. And this week, this week you'll get to hear from the man Brad Cecil, the one with the PowerPoint that got in fetal position and tells some pretty wild stories. So come join up, EmergePodcast.com. And guess what? You could be a producer like our friends at the Open Table Network and Karen Sloan. Don't make them lonely. Lonely.